Hi, welcome to 99% Fad Free. My name is Tara and I'm a straight talking, no nonsense, qualified nutritionist. I hate diet culture and wellness wankery and love teaching people just like you how to steer clear of all the nutrition nonsense so that they can live a healthy life while having a good relationship with food. In this series, I'll bust some popular nutrition myths, interview experts in nutrition and health, and just have a good old yarn about all things food, cooking, and of course, nutrition. I'll break down the difficult nutrition science for you and serve it up in easy to digest chunks of interesting information. All you have to do is have an open mind, be ready to learn something new, and sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hi, and thanks for joining me again for episode two of the podcast. Cannot wait to share this one with you. Today, I am sitting down with my friend and my colleague, Lydia Sudakovsky. Lydia is a dietitian with loads of experience. She runs the Sunshine Coast Guts Clinic, where she's helping people overcome digestive disorders teaching people how to ferment foods and she's also just helping people to understand how to live a healthy life with good nutrition. In today's show Lydia will talk us through what exactly the microbiome is, popular misconceptions around the gut and the microbiome, what are good gut bugs and bad gut bugs, what we can do to improve our gut health and get this she's even going to talk to us about poo transplants hope you enjoy it welcome Lydia to the program thank you for joining us today hi Tara We've got quite a few questions to get through because this is such an interesting topic and I know so many friends and family um, of, of, of mine are, are really interested and you see a lot of information online that's quite confusing about gut health. Would you, would you agree? Oh, definitely. And there's so many people claiming to be experts in it as well, which, you know, they've had an interest for about two minutes, but there's an opportunity there to sell something or promote themselves I guess yes Mm. well the reason I have asked you to come on and talk about gut health is because uh you you do have the qualifications behind you to talk about this and you've been involved in this area for quite a lot a, a little while um and so would you be able to fill us in on how you got to working in this area okay so I've been a dietitian for officially 30 years now Um, and in that time I've worked in a number of domains. I've worked at the university for 10 years, I've worked in private practice a lot and 10 years as a clinician in a hospital. But in the last 10 years or so I've had an increasing interest in probably irritable bowel syndrome in my clinic because the way we can treat it has really changed and become far more effective. In the old days, I felt like we were looking for a needle in a haystack. But now with the increase in research and knowledge about IBS, it's, you can actually change people's lives. 
So in my private practice, I've been working a lot in that field. And then just out of the normal interest and curiosity you have as a nutrition professional, we all have things that we particularly have an interest in. And for me, probably five years ago, I was really loving the work being done on blue zones and countries around the world where people live long, live healthy, live really vital, meaningful lives. And then they started looking at the commonalities. So one of them actually is legumes of all things, which we can talk about later because we all have to learn to love our legumes. But that kind of took me to choose certain conferences to go to and to start to read up and chase papers and look at the research. And that just organically took me into this field that I guess people are calling gut health. So I have taken a few online courses. I've really, I've spent a lot of time finding the good research and finding the people around the world who are doing the quality type collection of data and interpretation of this data to try and inform myself better in the area. Could you just go back quickly and touch on what is a blue zone for people who haven't heard oh, of those yeah. before? So I think it was National Geographic commissioned this guy, Dan Butner, to study populations, countries, communities around the world where people live long and vital. So they weren't just old sitting in a nursing home, but they were old and they were given the responsibility of looking after the young kids or they were still farming or they were still really doing meaningful work within their own community. And they came up with this term blue zones for these areas in which that happens. And as an example, um, Okinawa, an island to the south of Japan, is considered a blue zone. The Loma Lind community in um, California, where they're mostly Seventh-day Adventists and vegetarian, is a blue zone. There's a country in Greece that I'm never sure how to say, not country, but a part of Greece, Ikaria or Ikari. So there's places around the world that are called blue zones because that's where they have found populations of people living long and quality lives. I hear so much, Lydia, now about gut health, um, but... Uh, I, you know, I'm a nutritionist and I don't particularly know a lot about gut health because it is quite new, isn't it? I remember when I was at uni, the, the gut microbiome wasn't even a word um, for, for us 10 years ago or so. We didn't know much about it, did no. we? It's, it's a relatively new thing. It is, definitely. And it's a tough word in that gut health is like saying oral health or sexual yes, health. Yes, yes. It's so it's generic. So, broad, so people it? say, what is it? It's like, mm, you know, where yes, do I start with that? True. But basically, in 2007, the scientific journal Nature published an article, or there was a series of articles actually in that one journal. And some of the early work, one was this rat study where they had a cage of skinny rats and a cage of fat rats. And they perched the cage of skinny rats over the top of the fat rats. So their droppings, their feces were dropping into the cage of the fat rats. And they noticed over time that the fat rats were becoming skinny, even though they were still eating the way they normally would. So that was one of the early um, bits of research where they were starting to wonder what is it in the feces of these skinny rats that's actually changing the metabolism of the biology of these fat rats. So it's all kind of blossomed since that time, which is about 2007. 
Microbiome's a new term, or we should actually be calling it the microbiota. It's a term that encompasses all the microorganisms that live on or in you as a human being. That sounds scary. It is scary because there's that many of them. We now know that each human carries about 100 trillion microorganisms on and in their body. How much is 100 trillion? (laughs) I'm so glad you asked because my son (laughs) had to ask Alexa. (laughs) A trillion is a million million. Wow. So 100 trillion is a one with 14 zeros on it. Wow. So that's a really, really big number. And when we say microorganisms, we're talking not just about bacteria, we're talking about viruses, fungi, or however you want to say that, <laughs> um, and other you know, microscopic type organisms that um, are prevalent on the human body. And I can imagine there's even many of them that we haven't even discovered yet. Absolutely. So companies that are doing microbiome testing of humans for research are collecting databases and they are every week, I think, coming across microorganisms on people that don't even have a name yet. So we often get kind of, uh, I guess, when we hear about the microbiome or gut health, really we know very little about the whole subject, I guess. Um, but so far yeah it's early days and we will probably come to a day where there's microbial therapies so instead of giving people medicine as in drugs pharmaceuticals they might be given medicine um, bacteria or different micro microbes as medicine okay I see that as being a big part of the future and I think that there's a lot of research being done in that field yes so that's I guess working symbiotically with we know that there's microorganisms in us and mm. it's the learning which ones are associated with good health, which ones are associated with inflammation or cancer or other conditions. That um, it, it seems that actually the microbiome influences every type of system in our body. There's research on allergies, asthma, hay fever, mental health, depression, um, cardiovascular disease, anything inflammatory bowel cancer other types of cancers so it's almost limitless in terms of where that research might take us and when we talk about the microbiome would you be able to explain where where are we talking about when we talk about nutrition and and gut health where where are we looking at inside the body so we're looking at mostly the large bowel so if you look at the gastrointestinal tract it starts at the mouth and finishes at the rectum the stomach doesn't have a lot of bacteria in it it's in the um, region of thousands because your stomach is basically a pit of acid its main job is to kill any nasties and break food down into a liquid slurry the small intestine shouldn't have a lot of bacteria in it um, but the majority of them live in the large bowel or colon or large intestine, call it what you will. And that's where there's millions and millions. Okay, so there's research out there at the moment that is quite early but showing that if we could possibly change this microbiome and these bugs that live within our intestine, then it could be good for health. 
Definitely. Okay, that's great. So what do you see are the symptoms of not having good health, gut health? Abdominal pain, bloating, excessive belching, excessive wind, things like a feeling of incomplete evacuation, increased urgency, and that is a really common symptom with older people with IBS where they have accidents, they suddenly feel the need to go and they've got to go, they've got to get to that toilet fast or else they have accidents. And that can be incredibly um, affecting of the quality of their life. I meet people who won't leave the house before midday because that's when their bowels move and so they're too frightened to actually leave the house or they've had accidents. So I guess in the more um, serious side of it, it is definitely affecting people's quality of life quite significantly. Mm. So that's the obvious poor gut health. Mm. But I guess if you're healthy, you eat well, you don't have much going on, then probably you, you've you got a nice little rainforest of microorganisms mm. in your body and you don't need to do much about it. I think that's a really good point, Lydia. For example, I don't have gastrointestinal um, issues, I can eat uh, most foods, but then, you know, I do spend a lot of time on social media and there's a lot of stuff around, well, you should be eating this and more of this and more of this for the um, good gut health, but are there people out there that do have good health, like there are people out there that have good immunity already? Absolutely. So some people are just robust, mm. you know, they don't get sick often. Um, their bowels move easily and daily. They don't really have anything that concerns them about their health. They don't have a strong family history or they don't have signs of any chronic disease. So I tend to think if that's you, then just keep doing what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Unless, of course, you've got some really bad habits that might catch up with you. Mm -hmm. But it's that funny quest of health where some people want to be healthier and it's like, what is that? What does yes, that mean? Yes. Is there such a thing? Yes. Um, and it often leads to dietary restrictions where people think, oh, I might give up gluten, that will make me healthier. Yes. Whereas in fact, by restricting a major food item like gluten can lead to um, problems with the micro, or, well, reduced diversity in your microbiome because you're not providing as many sources of food to the bugs in your colon. So would you be able to explain that even a little bit more? What What is the diversity of, of those bugs, I guess you could call them, and um, why is that important? Okay, so in the large bowel, we've got millions and millions of different microorganisms, and there's probably thousands of species there. And if you equate that to something like a rainforest, a rainforest, start at the ground, push away the leaf litter, poke around in the soil. You'll see some really tiny, almost microscopic insects. As you look around, you'll see bigger insects, little reptiles, little mammals, birds, all types of creatures. In amongst those animals, there will be some nasties. So there'll be some bad spiders or some bad snakes that could potentially cause harm but they don't in that healthy ecosystem because there's food for everybody. So the same way in your gut, where you've got thousands of different species of microorganisms, if you feed them a diverse diet, if you eat lots of different types of food, then you've got a good chance of feeding 
all the good guys that are living in your gut and keeping that balance and diversity healthy. Whereas if you start to starve things out, you cut out major food groups, then there won't be food and there'll be competition amongst those and who knows who'll win. So these, um, these gut bugs that are living in our intestine, they eat the food that we put into our intestine? They kind of do. So fibre is called indigestible plant matter. So fibre in general, when you Google it or you look it up, it'll say plant matter that's not digested by the human body. So like the stringy stuff in the celery? Yep. Okay. <laughs> Some of those peas when you're a bit oh, sick. Oh, yes. <laughs> so fibre goes in and fibre comes out. And that's kind of, we knew that fibre could lower cholesterol. We know that fibre can help smooth out blood sugar levels. We know that fibre is important for regularity. But we also know now that a lot of the good guys, the good gut bugs, love fibre. So that's their food. And everything alive needs to eat. So they digest that fibre, break it down, make it easier to pass through the, the bowel and out. And that gives them the energy they need to keep living and reproducing. And we also know then that they produce byproducts of their own. So just like we as humans make urine, we make faeces, bacteria does as well. And what they make when they break down, digest, ferment fibre in your large bowel are what we now call postbiotics. They're bacterial metabolites. And these bacterial metabolites are the mechanism through which our gut can talk to our immune system or our brain. Because we know that there's three ways in which those byproducts connect with the rest of your body. So just like we as humans, when we, food, when we eat food, we have waste products mm -hmm. like feces and urine. When gut bugs ferment, digest, break down fibre in your gut, they're going to produce compounds as well. And the modern kind of term for that now is postbiotic. So we've had prebiotic, probiotic, and now we've got this concept of a postbiotic. And postbiotics are compounds that are made by microbes in your gut. Some of these are soluble, and I think you and I both went to university and would have learnt about bacteria playing a part in the production of vitamin K. Um, that's a, a soluble byproduct of microbial digestion. Then there's insoluble byproducts, which are short chain fatty acids. And that's kind of where a lot of the discussion is at in gut health. There's a type of fibre that's called resistant starch. And when gut bugs who love resistant starch break it down, they produce a compound called butyrate. And butyrate, we know, has quite a lot of positive health-giving effects on the lining of the bowel. So that's an insoluble metabolite. And then the gut bugs also produce neurotransmitters. Oh, that sounds fancy. <laughs> so one of them's GABA. And we know that GABA gets into our system and can talk to the brain and it has an effect that is calming. Mm -hmm. So if you've got higher levels of GABA in your system, then you're probably less prone to suffer from anxiety and have a bit more ability to calm your mind. Mm -hmm. So that's all bacteria at play in your bowel, talking with other parts of your body 
through postbiotics, through microbial metabolites. Wow. So they're very important. (laughs) They are. We want to feed them. We want to be kind. We want to provide an environment in our bowel that feeds them and then produces the stuff that our body needs so that they're getting fed and then uh, they give us special benefits, I guess. Absolutely. And fibre comes straight back to plant foods. Plant foods. Yep, so you only find fibre in plant foods. And that can be confusing for people who don't, you know, haven't really learnt much about nutrition, Mm. which is probably a lot of people. Because you go to tuck into a steak and you see the fibres. Yes. And so you think, oh, this, you know, this tough meat is full of fibre. Yes. That's not what we're talking about. When we talk about fibre, it's got to be a plant product. Yeah. And so that takes us back to whole grains, legumes, fruits, vegetables, nuts and seeds. That's where we get our fibre from. And those are the the foods that uh, many of the people in the blue zones are surviving on. Yeah, it's it's so interesting because initially they didn't really find a lot of commonalities, but when they started to dig in, legumes is a really common thread between the blue zones. Mm. Mixing your carbohydrates, so the old classic of beans and rice, that's found in numerous of the blue zones. Mm. Um the diets in these places are generally based on carbohydrates. Meat is, or protein foods, provide less of that. And the other commonality is not so much processing. So these tend to be more traditional kind of communities where they grow food, they make a lot of things from scratch, so they're not relying on a high amount of processed food. What goes through your mind, Lydia, as someone that works in this area of gut health? What goes through your mind when you see people giving out advice online that says that you shouldn't eat this, this, this and this food, you know, um, don't eat this fruit and, and because it will cause digestion problems or um, these types of vegetables are terrible yeah. um, or um, you should be on a low-carb diet, for example. What goes through your mind? I, I guess you're thinking about our bugs, aren't you? And, yeah. and what goes? Th- what are the risks, I guess, of, of just suddenly cutting out foods? Well, we know for sure that anyone on a restrictive diet is going to be killing off the diversity in their gut, in their intestines. So I'm not sure to what extent, but we definitely know restrictive eating leads to less diversity. And that would be because... There are so many different types of gut bugs in that forest, I yeah, guess, or so yeah. many plants in that forest. They want food. different foods, yeah, so we have absolutely. to be feeding them yep. what they need. And so yep. if we're only eating four different types of vegetables, for example, they're yeah. not necessarily getting what... Some of them aren't getting what they need. Yeah, and I guess um, for people who get influenced by social media or make decisions to change the way they eat... You have to then look at what their motivators might be. And quite often that motivator is just to look like the model promoting the product. Mm. It's not about health. Mm. And as a dietitian, I care about people's health and I want them to live hopefully well, happy, long and without ill health or chronic disease. So when people give up potato because it's white starch mm. or they won't eat rice and they have cauliflower instead... Mm. There can possibly be long-term health implications with those changes. 
if they're healthy changes, then possibly not. But there's very good evidence to show that when people restrict their eating, they're going to eat less types of food. And so we do know that will have an effect on their gut microbiome. What if, for example, I had an ear infection next week and doctor said, come on, Tara, you need five days of antibiotics. Do I need to suddenly um, be solely concentrating on, oh my gosh, I've got to put back in all these good bugs and my gut health is completely wiped out. Now I'm going to get digestive issues. Um, now I'm going to have no immunity because I've got no gut <laughs> bugs because yeah. you do hear a lot about antibiotics wiping out the yeah. good gut bugs. Look, I think it's about how often you use them. There used to be a lot of fear-mongering and even things I read in the early days when I was looking into this stuff would say, oh my God, you know, you take antibiotics once and you've wiped out yes. your entire microbiome. It's yes. like you've round up the whole yard. Yeah. It's not true. No. So we know that um, it will come back relatively quickly within a few weeks. Each person has what we call a native microbiome. So you've got a very individual and unique rainforest of microorganisms in your gut and it'll be completely different to mine most likely even though we might have some species in common what's healthy for you is going to be different what's healthy for me but the research does show that when people have had antibiotics within about two to four weeks they've gone back to their native microbiome mm. and that leads on really nicely I know you wanted to talk about probiotics mm. The research is still kind of not showing any great links between taking probiotics and improving your overall gut health. And they, when you say probiotics, do you mean the little capsules you yeah, get at the yep, supermarket and yep, the chemist? Yep. Yeah. And you'll see that there are some that have only one strain of um, bacteria and others will have 10 or 12 different strains. And I guess those manufacturers have looked for research and looked for links and they'll have a probiotic for immune health and a probiotic for this and a probiotic for that. And so they're taking science, but at, at this current time, what we don't know or what we think is that you're not going to change your own native microbiome very much. So you might take a probiotic for two weeks and if you did microbiome testing during that two weeks, those species you're ingesting are going to show up in your samples. But when you stop, about a month later, they're most likely all gone. Mm -hmm. So you haven't really changed your mm -hmm. native microbiome much over that time. Mm -hmm. But by eating a, a lot of different types of plant food, you're just encouraging a really healthy garden. So what's native to you, and we have fluctuations in our microbiome, like you, if you have gastro and you're sick for a few weeks or you can't eat very much, it's going to change, but it'll change back as well. Mm, so it's very, It adapts, doesn't it? It does adapt, but the research is showing that you'll make the biggest change through the food you eat Okay. rather than through taking a probiotic. Okay. So say we do have changes in our micro in in our gut and we've had we've had some um, two courses of antibiotics I, I, I guess then um, really really the capsules will sort of 
put the good bacteria back in, but they might not necessarily stay. They may and not particularly last. Particularly if we're not feeding them yeah. those prebiotics, which is the fibre, because there's no use putting the good the good bacteria in if they've got nothing to eat. Yeah. Yeah. I um I last year sent off a stool sample to Microba and yes. had my own microbiome How tested. How did you go? Oh, it was exciting. I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> and I had really good diversity, which I was very proud of. Um, but they give you a report and they list all these kind of key species. Oh. And I didn't have any bifidobacteria, which is often what's found in probiotics. Ah. And there's certain strains of lactobacillus that they test for that didn't show up in my system either. And I was straight on the phone to the head microbiologist. How come I don't have bifidobacteria <laughs> animalis or lactis? Yeah. And there were some strains that he said, we only see them in people taking probiotics. I see. So he goes, I know from that stool sample that that person takes a probiotic, probiotic. because of what I'm seeing in their sample. Mm. But it, it seems that they're not obviously native to a lot of people. Okay. It's, it's so That's, interesting. That is interesting. <laughs> <laughs> as, as is poo transplants as, as yep. well that are becoming... Yep. Um, uh, there's a lot of research around... Would you be able to explain what, what that is? So a fecal microbiome transplant is where they take poo from a healthy person and they, um, through either colonoscopy or some people supposedly do it at home, I don't know how, but you can transplant some poo into your colon. Yes. And it has shown some really positive effects in a few very specific situations. One of them is there's a type of gut infection called Clostridium difficiles. It's a contributor to a lot of deaths around the world each year from gastro-type deaths. Commonly known, I guess, C. diff. C. diff yeah. yep. It's mostly in the elderly or those with a really compromised immune system, so maybe mm. someone who's battling cancer or is very unwell. It contributes to profuse very debilitating diarrhea and as I said it contributes to a lot of deaths worldwide. Mm. The data on microbi microbiota transplants for C. diff is fantastic. Mm. It's something like a 90% cure rate. So taking the poo from one person and inserting it into the, the rectum really isn't yep. it? and up into the intestine of a person who is unwell yep. to try and improve the health of that person. So it has shown to cure it and stay cured for some time. Mm -hmm. But even the methodologies for the transplant seems to be a bit iffy. Like I've kind of looked it up, how do they do it? And some labs or some gastros will give a transplant weekly for two months. Mm -hmm. Some do it once only. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of queries around how much, the volume that's inserted, the frequency and how long it's gonna last. So it's still very new science and I guess if you had a C. diff infection that you couldn't clear after multiple doses of antibiotics, then it would definitely be something a specialist could help you with. Yes, do not do yourself that No, way. no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want people to spend money on something we're not sure about. Mm. I don't want people to have false hopes and think that, oh, if I eat you know, acai berries, then... I'm never going to get cancer or whatever it might be. Mm. I feel like we've always got to bring the discussion back to food 
And as a health professional, I really stand by the ethics of do no harm. Mm. And I feel confident that if I'm encouraging people to eat unprocessed, whole foods, more plant foods, more fruit, more veggies, more of the good things, I'm, I'm going to be encouraged. I won't be doing harm. Mm. Whereas if I'm getting them to spend money on expensive product, one, it may do nothing and they're just wasting their money. And two is if it's just a supplement or it's a product that's out there with controversy around it, we don't know. Maybe it will do harm. And when, when things are found to work and we've got the good evidence on their therapeutic benefits, then they'll become part of the mainstream. And doctors will talk about it or you'll be able to find a lot of good information on that. So if someone is interested in improving their gut health but they don't have the money to go and buy these um, supplements to improve their gut health, they can't afford buying a smoothie with an extra shot of gut health powder, for example. Um, What can they do at home? So there's a a hashtag I love called Eat the Rainbow. And it, it's just such a beautiful, descriptive, simple way to encourage people to eat more fruit and veg. We know that food, natural colours, like the bluey purple you get in a blueberry or the gorgeous pinky red you get in a strawberry or a raspberry, those colour compounds are called, are called polyphenols. And polyphenols are naturally occurring antioxidants And we do know that a lot of the healthy gut bugs love polyphenols. So look at your plate every night. And if it's white, if it's bland or it's all brown, it's just a giant schnitz on your plate. (laughs) I sure enjoy that occasionally. Mm. But get some green on there. Get some oranges. Get Mm. some red. Eat Mm. your carrots. Eat your capsicum. Eat your pumpkin. Eat your green veggies. And find stuff that's seasonal and local. Like if cauliflowers are cheap in winter eat cauliflower they're white so it's probably not the best example of polyphenols but if you try to eat locally seasonally in line with what's grown in your region and you're getting a lot of color then the chances are that you've that's one big tick already from a gut health point of view so we can kind of relax what i'm getting for you from you lydia is that we can kind of relax around gut health a little bit in that it's very it sounds to be very important but if we are having a rainbow of food and we're feeding those gut bugs we're doing a really good job aren't we absolutely we're already ticking those boxes yep and then don't be frightened of whole grains Mm. my my favorite whole grain is probably oats because oats are so unprocessed Mm. oats are oats they're cheap They've been rolled, that's about it. And they're just one of those whole grains that are so easy to use for breakfast or to try and incorporate it in other things. Oats and you know brown rice, all the different types of rice, quinoa, they're just wonderful, very natural foods that can form a really nice basis for a meal. And, and feed our bugs. Yep, feed your gut bugs, add the colour stuff to it, add mm. your fruit and veggies and you'll end up with something delicious. What other nutrients do, do the oats have in them that are good for us? So oats are rich in beta-glucan, which is a type of fibre, and we do know that that type of fibre can help lower cholesterol. We know that beta-glucan can 
slow down the absorption of the carbohydrate into your bloodstream. And we know that it's rich in fiber, so it's really good for your gut health, for digestion, motility of food through your through your gut and how do you like to prepare yours (laughs) i know i've seen photos you see so what do you like to make for my uh, dirty secret is that i hate porridge you hate porridge i tried so hard at university one of the winters when i was studying nutrition i persevered with porridge every day for about a month and I used to almost gag eating it. Oh, I, I've got a real textural problem oh, with no. it, especially when it's hot and steamy. There's something oh. that <laughs> I don't like. But I love cold oats, so I guess I started eating muesli, and then I discovered soaked oats, which are pretty trendy. Mm. People have been doing it, you know, a lot mm. over the last few years, and I think it originates in like Switzerland and those mm. northern European countries in summer where. Um, They'd have their traditional birch and muesli, so yes. oats soaked overnight with things like apples and nuts and seeds. And that's just my favourite. I, I just love it. Mm-hmm. And I love that I can do my prep the night before, yeah. put my oats in a container with a bit of milk, a grated apple, a few pepitas, a few walnuts, a teaspoon of chia seeds, stick it in the fridge. And in the morning, I can just add a spoon of yogurt or some fresh fruit or whatever. And you can change it every day, dependent on what fruit you've got in the house. Wow, love it. <laughs> You're making me hungry for breakfast. I was in Italy at a conference once and they put little tiny shards of chocolate in there. Yes, I, that's what I, I do that. I do, yeah. Or just cocoa. Yeah. Because plain cocoa powder makes chocolate oats and yeah. kids love that. Yeah. And it's got the polyphenols in yeah, there Yeah, absolutely. Well, so Dark chocolate's delicious. got fantastic polyphenols. Yes. Gut bugs love that. Yes. Well, hopefully after <laughs> listening today, everyone is out there now prepping their overnight oats with a smidgen of chocolate on top. <laughs> Um, so to finish, Lydia, what I get all of my guests to give me the rundown on is your top one tip. So not 10 tips, but just your top tip if you're in the elevator with someone and they said to you, oh, hello, you're a dietitian. What do you think is key to good health? I would go back to a very boring kind of guideline around If you don't eat two fruit and five veg a day, that's where you should start. Because people go looking for really technical, fancy, you know, powders and juices and blends and really weird, expensive stuff often. But when you delve into it, are they eating vegetables every day? And I think overwhelmingly all the research in Australian data shows that I think it's only 30% of Australian adults would eat five vegetables a day. Yep. Um, And the two fruits. So just start there. Eat your two fruit and five veggies every day and go for colour. It's actually 4% of adults are getting their recommended number of serves of vegetables a day. And yet we're also finding that but they're spending the money on very expensive items for gut health, for protein, um, and all of that. So that's a really good tip, Lydia. Thank you for that. It it really is just taking it to basics. And we can feel 
comfort in knowing that we're doing an okay job if we can do that absolutely if your children are eating vegetables every day you're doing a really fine job at your parenting and Mm. your provision of food to your family Mm. yeah great Mm -hmm. thank you Lydia for joining us it's been really fascinating and I look forward to following everything that is happening in the uh, in this new world of the microbiome and seeing it where where it takes us we should touch base regularly yes (laughs) thank you how good was that i love how lydia really explains things so simply and her philosophy about food is really really inspiring Not to mention I could listen to her soothing voice all day long. She leaves us with a really simple message and that is to enjoy all foods. To try and eat an abundance of different types of foods and try not to restrict. I'd love to add that it's really important not to listen to the nonsense that you find about gut health online. Try and get your information from someone like Lydia who has the qualifications and the knowledge but also the experience in that industry and that particular niche area to really help you. If you have any problems with gastrointestinal disorders like irritable bowel syndrome or like to figure out any intolerances or allergies get in touch with Lydia and she does consultations in person on the Sunshine Coast or what's really amazing is you can have a consult with Lydia via Skype from wherever you are in the world. So head to her website which is Sunshine Coast Gut Clinic. Send her a message via the email option there and she'll get back to you. Reach out to Lydia by searching for Sunshine Coast Gut Clinic and you'll find her. While you're there, come and say hello to us, me and my husband by searching for The Nutrition Guru and The Chef. Come and say hi on the website or on social media. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, I'd love if you could leave us a review. It helps the podcast to reach more people and get found in the search engines. So that'd be fabulous. Drop us a line if you'd like us to cover any particular topics or if you have any suggestions for our further guests. Thanks so much for tuning in. Catch you next time.